I love where it takes me mentally. I love the process of getting broken down like mentally. I, I love the clarity that comes with that state of mind that you can only arrive at after, you know, huge effort and having those doubts. It's, it's having those moments of wondering what you're doing and why you're doing it, you know, and then pushing through that. Something about that exercise puts you in a very clear, distilled mindset. Most of us are familiar with failure. It's one of life's unpleasant realities. But if you're an endurance sport athlete, your relationship with failure is a bit more complicated. Because while normal people try to avoid the edges of life where disaster is more likely, adventure-seeking souls, they try to exist on the cliffs. In fact, they intentionally embrace the most unpredictable, jagged parts of the human experience. Welcome to Wild Why, the podcast where we explore why and how people find healing and transformation in outdoor challenges. In this episode, we're talking with an ultra-running legend, Jared Campbell. As legends go, he'd be easy to miss, mostly because he wears the persona of every man with a kind of ease and humility that make his ex- extraordinary accomplishments seem run-of-the-mill to those unfamiliar with the brutality of events like Barclays or Rufa. Well, I got into long-distance running. Um, I was working in a lab up at the University of Utah mm-hmm. um, for a professor there who, at the time, I was a, a rock climber, and uh, I worked for a guy who seemed to always be heading out the door or coming in the door with, you know, dirty clothes on, and he'd been out for a run. And um, he was my boss and kind of a mentor, and at the time, he was training for the local race here, the Wasatch 100. Um to which I thought that just sounded absolutely awful. And I even said to him <laughs> out loud, that is something I will never do, uh, Pat. That's a, that sounds like a horrible idea. And I was uh, kind of shocked by how quickly I dismissed the idea and then suddenly became intrigued at the fact that I so quickly dismissed it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's so, kind of... So you say you became intrigued by that, like it bothered you that you had dismissed it that quickly? Yeah, yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. And, and then so- it turned into, I fell into the trap of, well, that does sound horrible. It does sound hard. Now I now I need to prove it to myself that I can do it. You know, it's kind of the first step. It's the uh, gateway mentality. <laughs> and you would uh, you would not run before? Uh, no, I did a ton of. I mean, mountain endurance activities. Just um, I mean, I wasn't like you know your collegiate track star or high school track uh, kind of person. But I was doing a lot of really long, you know, ten, twelve hour days in the mountains, that kind of stuff. But more from a climbing perspective than a than a you know, pure running standpoint. So did you consider yourself a hiker at that point or just a mm, explorer? Yeah, explorer, I guess. I was I was always really good at moving fast on technical terrain and at high altitudes and things like that. While Jared spent a lot of time traversing mountains around the world, the idea of racing was something new. And while most of us mere mortals like to ease into something new, maybe start with a 5K or even a marathon, Jared chose to jump into the sport at one of the most iconic points the Wasatch 100. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, part of why I was so intrigued, you know, at the time I was a young engineering student at the U, and, you know, you start thinking about it not as a a running race and more through the lens of, like, calculations and breaking it down into, uh, you know, the pace and what your strategy would be. So I, I became pretty intrigued at that element of it. And on paper, I was like, it's not too different from the things I'm doing. Um, you know, if I was spending 17, 18 hours in the Tetons, which I was doing at that time, connecting peaks and whatnot, I'm like, well, 
It's maybe moving a bit faster, but at the end of the day, the food, the hydration, the gear, the preparation, the mindset, um, it's not it's not that different, at least to just get through it, you know, to get through the Wasatch. And so um, I kind of became intrigued by the, the, the planning, the logistics of it all. It wasn't just running 100 miles that intrigued Jared. It was the idea of connecting different trails and peaks into one continuous experience, just as he had in the Tetons and other mountain ranges. He also loved the idea of trying to unlock the secrets of nutrition and fitness required to compete in something like running 100 miles in the Wasatch Mountains. You know, I loved the idea of like seeing a lot of terrain and covering a lot of ground and a hundred mile foot race is an extension of that. You're just covering more ground. And to me, you know, I, I actually don't love the act. Like if I was, I'm not the guy to just go run around your neighborhood for five or 10 miles, you know, but running through the hills and up and down hills and in the daytime, the nighttime, the hot, the cold, mm-hmm. um, that's really interesting to me, you know. And is it, um, you said something about the planning. I mean, is that part of it, the strategy? Because that's, uh, we're going to get to it, but that's yeah. that's also what's alluring about Barclays. It's yeah. not just about running. Yeah. Oh, I mean. Or endurance of any kind. Right. I mean, it's it's a, the longer the race, the more planning and you know, preparation that goes into the more variables there are. And mm-hmm. so it really is just like problem solving, you know, longer races, 50, 100 mile races and, and beyond. It, it You have to be sort of intrigued at the idea of, of, of the planning, the preparation. The experience was even worse than he imagined. It was uh, absolutely brutal for sure. I mean, probably my most memorable 100, to be honest, in the sense that... Um, because it's so new, you know, like you remember everything. All your emotions are just like, your senses and your emotions are just super heightened, you know. And I will say, you know, fast forward to where you've done a whole bunch of them, you sort of get methodical about it. And, you know, there's something really cool about new experiences. And your first hundred is inherently going to be very, you know, stressful in a way which makes it memorable, (laughs) Um, painful in ways that, you know, most other races for me aren't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, tons to learn. Tons of mistakes that I made, you know. Um, it was it was rough, yeah. I mean, it did not go well. <laughs> but did you finish? I did finish. Okay. When you say it didn't go well, give me some specifics. Um, the usual stuff, stomach Yeah, stuff. the usual stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Lost my stomach, I'm sure, multiple times throughout it. Um you know, we had chafage, uh, yeah. you know, bodily injuries. I had an Achilles tendon that was really bothering me, I remember. Um, and and you're, don't, you're not yet armed with the knowledge and the confidence that you can push through those things, you know. So that makes it, that's part of what makes it so memorable is, you know, it really feels like you're pushing yourself to this extreme limit because you haven't convinced yourself that you can push through that. You know, that first 100-mile that first, uh, race is a really sort of monumental thing for for your mind, I think, to go through. Jared Campbell may be tougher or more talented than most of us, but the beauty of sport is that it treats us all the same. Whether you're running your first marathon or your 100th ultra, your mind will make you question everything at the worst possible moments. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I definitely did that first one and and for many subsequent 100 millers for sure. It's just part of the process Mm -hmm. is you will have those moments, you know, throughout it where you're asking yourself, you know, why am I out here? You know, why did I sign up for this? This is stupid. Um, But 
after enough experience, you realize that that's just part of it, you know. So when that comes, you you, you have your your tricks to get through that mindset, you know. So after you finished your first, what did you think? Okay, I'm done now. I did it. Or what? What was your thinking? Um. Well, I was in a. <laughs> I, I was. I was in a lot of pain after and really struggled to walk for like weeks probably, you know, um, which is interesting because at this stage, um, my body's fairly used to it and I'm back to normal pretty quick, you know, but no, I was very beat up from it for sure. Um, I had gone into it the mentality of, I just need to do it once, prove that I can do it, move on with life, back to climbing, right? <laughs> and, you know, <clears throat> 15 or 16 years later, whatever it's been, it's like now that is a big part of my life. For sure, but um, once I recovered, still not, are you back to climbing? Um, I climb a little bit, yeah, not like yeah. I used to. But um, once I could walk again, <laughs> um, then I started looking around at other races that would be interesting to me. Again, I was kind of coming from that climbing, you know, mountainous mentality, so I was never drawn to flatter races. So I set my sights on this race called the Hard Rock 100, you know, and at the time that was like the gnarly, you know. In fact, it was pretty obscure in the in the realm in the world of ultra running. So um, at the time, there weren't a ton of people trying to get into it like there are now. So mm-hmm. I signed up for that. It was my second 100. So after you could walk again and started looking around at other things that you thought might be interesting, I mean, did you reflect on what was what what about the experience was um, you know joyful or happy like that you enjoyed, or, or was it something else, or was it the, just the challenge? I mean, yeah, I loved it. I, I, I think I've always had the disposition of being able to find goodness even in pretty terrible situations. <laughs> and so I, yeah, I definitely looked back on it very positively, even the parts. Maybe I have a very good ability to forget um, painful situations. <laughs> so pretty soon, yeah, I didn't even really remember the fact that I, you know, could barely walk for 10 hours, you know, during the race, which was rather miserable. But um I'm pretty good at forgetting the pain and remembering all the great things that I experienced doing that, honestly. The second of three children, Jared said losing his father as a young adult created some of the groundwork for how he approaches both ultra running and life. I I mean, I probably I had a few things in life, like my father passed away when I was really young. And not that that drove me to seek out mountains necessarily, but more it probably played a role in me... <clears throat> wanting to try to control stressful situations or, you know, loss of someone when you're really young is some, it feels like an out of control. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. And I I think I did go through a phase after that and probably still through today where I kind of like, I like the act of um, taking something that feels uncontrollable and trying to, you know, with your own mind and your own you know, faculties, you can you can uh, maintain control of things. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I had things like that that shaped me. I had parents divorced when I was young, one that passed away, you know, like, I, I think that's, I, to some extent, a common thread. Yeah. A common element that you'll see among people a- attracted to things like this is some somewhat traumatic thing in their life, you know. I mean, I, a lot of self-reflection. Ha, I've arrived at that in my mind, you know, because, um, yeah, I, I just think there's something to that—the the idea of trying to control, um, control the things you can. You know, I've been very, 
drawn to that. Now, that said, you know, I have a very analytical side, and I think I get that from my father. My mother is the exact opposite. She's musical, she's artistic, and so I think I have a weird ability to do the planning, logistical side of things, you know, um, but then also when I'm out in the situation, I can be, you know, thinking on the fly and t- take it as it comes and roll with it um, kind of thing. So I like to think I have uh, maybe both. The best of both of them. Firing on two different ways of thinking, yeah. His father died when he was 20 years old after battling cancer for many years. He was, actually. He, um, he got diagnosed with ocular melanoma, a very rare form of skin cancer, in the back of his eye. He dealt with that for many years, probably five years, I'd say. Weird treatments and unusual, you know, experimental, like, uh, treatments, really, uh, for many years. And then uh, he had the other option of having, like, an eye removed, I remember. Um, And he said, no, I'll try these experimental things. And uh, years later, they declared him cancer-free, and he, you know, left the office clicking his heels. And it wasn't very long after that that he came down with... um, almost like a pneumonia type thing and the cancer had metastasized and you know spread um, to his lungs and, and then from that point it was really fast downhill but so yeah real um, emotional roller coaster for everyone um, certainly him where you know he's fighting 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 and then told you beat it and then no throughout his life Jared has found a way to see the blessing in any situation even the darkest, toughest experiences. I mean, I remember you know? the being pretty young, right? Like yeah. 13 years old or something. Um, and maybe, you know, this is back to the whole, like, how do you make the best of a bad situation or find the silver lining? You know, I've kind of written about that mentality in, say, an ultra. But um, I remember at 13 years old thinking and telling myself, like, this is actually for the better. They clearly don't get along. You know, I think the situation will be... Uh, actually, this is a good thing, you know. There's a silver lining to this, right? Um, mm-hmm. And really genuinely feeling that and thinking that at a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. So my sisters took it very differently. I think it was harder on them. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, as far as a, a kid going through, your parents getting divorced, it didn't maybe tear me up as much as, you know, so you did, did my sisters. So that, I mean, and that would be an indication as to how you view things. Like you're looking for some positive yeah. thing from that. Yeah. And then, I mean, when he passed away, I guess going along, pulling that thread a little further, I spoke at his funeral. He wanted, uh, he wanted me to, and the, my sisters actually. And um, I really took it as an opportunity to reflect on all the beautiful things that came out of his passing, which might sound a bit morbid, but a lot of good things I came about from him uh, passing away. All these beautiful connections with his siblings and even people he worked with who I had never met. You know, like a lot of cool things happened. Um, as a result of that uh, sad event, you know, and yeah. and I tried to focus on that in the the little talk that I gave. It kind of allowed me to to talk um, without breaking down, really. <laughs> that doesn't mean he doesn't suffer. It means he doesn't let the suffering steal his joy. Now, the father of two girls, he still feels and acknowledges the void left by his father's affection and guidance. You take that with you your whole life. You're always, um, as the stages in your life change and as you change, um, you're always asking yourself, what role would my father play at this point, you know? Um, I mean, when he when uh, he passed away, I was pretty young. I was just, you know, a young kid, didn't, didn't know a whole lot. Fast forward to where I get into, like, building and architecture, and he was into that as well. And then you get married and you have children. 
And yeah, I'm of course I'm saying like, what role would he play? I mean, he would be the coolest, you know, grandfather to my two girls right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I ask myself. Pushing himself to unknown, untested limits is something he does on a regular basis. In part, he says, because he's come to value the clarity that brings to a chaotic mind. I think I've become addicted to that uh, process of not knowing that something's sort of possible and then proving that it is possible, you know, like... Why are you addicted to it? Like, what do you get out of it? (laughs) I I mean, for the really hard hard things I've done, um, you know, at least hard for me... um, I just I love the I love where it takes me mentally. I love the process of b- getting broken down like mentally. I I love the clarity that comes with that state of mind that you can only arrive at after, you know, huge effort and having those doubts. It's it's having those moments of wondering what you're doing and why you're doing it, you know, and then pushing through that. Something about that exercise puts you in a very clear, distilled mindset. Um and I, I, I love that mindset. I love the way I feel after, you know, when you actually cross the finish line or accomplish that thing you wanted to. I love where my head's at after. And and uh, it's kind of clear, you know, like our lives are so busy and just data coming at us all the time. And you're, you know, it's just crazy like our lives now. And I, the best way I've found to get into that mindset is... Um, you know, through the vehicle of these kind of long long runs and long races, so. After this short break, we're going to talk about how Jared Campbell took on the race that, quote, eats its young, and he finds a reason to turn personal experience into a community challenge. Wild Y is supported by businesses that understand what motivates people to seek adventure, challenge, and healing in outdoor experiences. Jared's story is made possible by our partners at utahrunning.com, Deseret News Marathon, and the Salt Lake Marathon. We at the Loudmouth Project want to thank Steve Bingham Hawk and the Salt Lake Marathon for supporting the Salt Lake chapter of Team Red, White, and Blue by allowing them to run the marathon course as a relay. Instead of handing off a baton from runner to runner, they pass a flag and they don't leave anyone behind. They collect runners as they navigate the course. And when a team of about 40 runners finally crosses the finish line, it's something special to see. We got the word that you guys were within range. And then all of a sudden, I see this massive blob of red. So Christy, our volunteer director, and Jen, our marketing director, we all run up there to come see them. And it was incredible. I mean, I was looking at everybody. Carter's crying. Jen's crying. (laughs) Everybody's crying. And, uh, And then what was great is the entire event focused back on the finish line at that point. Steve said it was a mission of Team Red, White, and Blue which is to enrich the lives of veterans through physical, social, and service opportunities that moved him to offer the team a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity. I knew we could trust you, and then I knew that whatever you would touch, you you would have. So that was a big part of it. But also, I I love the mission of Team RWB. I wish everybody had a Team RWB, and they can (laughs) if they join. Because, uh, you know, we all need to be banding together in, in this world that is continually divisive and and rooted in in digital, which is disconnecting us all. The Salt Lake Marathon is the largest team event Team Red, White, and Blue offers its members. It's a chance for them to run for those who've served and to honor those lost in service to this country. So to Steve, Salt Lake Marathon, and to all of our veterans, thank you.
Failure is not something Jared Campbell shies away from. In fact, he thinks some failure makes for a more resilient competitor. Yeah, I actually think DNFing is a really good thing to do every once in a while because <laughs> it just lights this incredible fire uh, afterwards, you know. I'm not saying, I mean, I do not like the process of it, but I, I like that I don't like it, right? <laughs> because yeah. when you do it, uh, you turn around, and um, I've always found that the next race or the next thing I do after some DNF, um, I have this cool, like, drive that I lacked before, you know. So there's a silver lining to DNFing. <laughs> uh, but it's a horrible experience, um, especially if the objective, the race, whatever, mattered a lot to you. Um, you know, you're always, it does not, it's amazing. You can have, if it's an injury or your stomach or whatever, all these things. Um, for me, it's like a day later, I'm just like, what? Of course I could have got through that, you know? You always feel better and you're always like, bloody hell, if I could back <laughs> up in time, you know, I would make a different decision. So. Among Jared's most impressive accomplishments is finishing the legendary Barclays Marathon three times. Since it started in 1986, only 15 people have finished. Jared is the only runner to have finished three times, which he did in 2012, 2014, and 2016. After our conversation in January, he was invited to run the race again. But this year, he twisted his ankle on the first loop and had to drop out. No one finished the 2019 race, which about 40 people are invited to run every year. The race is steeped in tradition and lore, and Jared Campbell is part of that. Created by Gary Cantrell, who goes by Lazarus Lake, the race was inspired by the 1977 escape of James Earl Ray, the assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. In just 55 hours... Ray covered about eight miles in the Tennessee mountains. Laz expects runners to cover 100-ish miles in 60 hours. And the proof of the difficulty isn't in the number of runners who fail. It's really in the record finishing time of 52 minutes and three seconds. If we're honest, Barkley is so much more than a race. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I've, I had known of Barkley for a long time, probably since my early days running 100-mile stuff. Uh, at the time, it was the super obscure event. It was very secretive, very little information. Um, the only information that existed back then was this crappy website, <laughs> um, you know, 1990s HTML, and it still hasn't changed. These, like, 8-bit graphics, so they were colors were bad, and it almost made it, like interesting even more interesting and it was a joke between me and a good friend of mine for for many years and and honestly i had no desire to go do it like not at all um yeah but for the audience who might not know about the event it's it's a it's kind of a survival contest meets meets ultra marathon meets navigational um orienteering to some extent um mixed with really bad weather it's crazy terrain you know there's huge amounts of vertical up and down and mostly off trail and an organizer that sort of wants some people to fail <laughs> and and yeah yeah i mean, I mean like he believes failure is part of the you know part of the allure i guess absolutely the I real possible that there's more a chance that you'll fail than you'll succeed yes completely in fact he puts on a number of races and um, each of them are very different. You might think his mentality, if you studied him, you might think he'd put on the same race, but not, not true. Uh, I would argue that every race he puts on is a different way that he's sort of testing people. They're like human study, ex human experiments. I really, and the Barkley <laughs> happens to be one where he wants it to be uh, barely, barely possible. 
and he's set up a you know, framework for how to make that be the case. And in fact, it's been going on since the mid-80s. I think 86 was the first year. And he made it really hard. Nobody finished for many years. And uh, no one thought it was possible, right? The community thought, like, this isn't possible. And then eventually somebody did finish, and it changed changed everybody's mindset, you know? It was a really interesting data point of this is possible. And I really think that uh, sort of changes the community of runners and the way they approached it subsequent years, right? And it would be wrong. Uh, if, if your goal is to have a race be barely possible, you have to change it and make it a little bit harder. Otherwise, people would figure it out and get it, get it dialed. And so um, he was actually out here a couple of years ago, and uh, I was out for a hike with him. <laughs> and he said, you know, Jared, it's, it's infinitely harder to make a race with a 1% finishing rate than a 0% finishing rate. And I thought about that. I'm like, you know, he's totally right. If you wanted an impossible race, it's actually pretty easy to come up with an impossible race, right? Very, very easy. Um, and then there's tons of races that are like, you know, 50% finishing rate up through, you know, 100% finishing rate or something like that. Um, but as you as you sort of whittle that down, and if, if your objective was like a 1% finishing rate, which is kind of his unwritten objective, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and in his words, it takes a lot of samples. It takes a lot of data points to figure out what that means in terms of a course. And then as people figure it out and and finish it, the race subsequently gets a little bit harder, such that it can maintain that sort of barely possible status. Altering the course just enough to keep it close to impossible is an incredibly difficult challenge. It's pretty small, right? Because uh, if you look at it, the race, they give you 60 hours to finish it, which sounds like a huge amount of time. Um, Turns out uh, there's not a lot of... (laughs) You need almost every minute of that, I'd say, uh, especially now. Uh, And so uh, when he ratchets up the difficulty level, it can't be like... 20% 20% harder. It's, it's you know, 3% harder or 2% harder. Just a little bit, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But I love that it's so, it's an evolving race. It's always uh, self-correcting, uh, meaning that uh, it changes just enough to sort of always be, you know, up in the game just a little bit. And if, if th- when three people finished, right, uh, it got quite a bit harder the next time. It was training for his first Barkley that planted the seeds for an unusual winter running challenge in his hometown. I started in the winter of 2011. I had signed up for the Barkley. I figured out how to get in. <laughs> and so I knew I was in, and I needed to just get my butt into gear and uh, train for this fairly daunting event, right? And uh, the event is, like, early April time frame, and so that means you're training a lot in, like, December, January, February. Most people might not call those months the best running months in Utah. Smarter people are probably on skis or <laughs> something else. But for me, yeah, so I kicked it into high gear when I found out I was in. And uh, prepping for that event, I don't count miles or distance or anything other than like vertical ascent and descent, right? So to me, I just, because the Barkley is so steep, there's, I think at this point, nearly 70,000 feet of ascent. Um, so I, you know, my point is I was going, you know, up steep trails yeah, <laughs> or steep, yeah. uh, snowy trails. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was doing. I mean, I was like living it every spare moment I had, I was up or down hills and, uh, you know, I'd put together, I'd done my planning and I decided on this date, I'm going to do 24 hours of, you know, the West side of Granger, which is a fairly steep trail. 
Those early days got pretty lonely, I will say. <laughs> yeah. So, By yourself. So I had this 24-day, 24-hour uh, training, you know, day that I needed. And mm-hmm. I, I was uh, pretty antisocial because I was running all the time and not seeing any of my friends and they were making fun of me. And as one, you know, night, I'm like, this is, how do I turn this thing I'm going to do regardless? I'm going to go run up and down this peak into something positive and constructive um, and for the greater good. And running... Uh, starting at, you know, 5,000 feet, kind of like shoreline elevation, um, and running up the top of the mountains in those months, you inherently, uh, whether you want to recognize it or not, you're visually seeing and you're physically ingesting and, uh, and dealing with the bad air pollution. So, uh, you know, this collision of ideas, I'm going to do 24 hours. This air pollution thing really is probably the worst aspect of living in, in the valley here. Can I somehow use one to benefit the other? For four years, Jared ran the west side of Grandeur Peak, a trail that isn't officially maintained in the mountains near his Salt Lake City home. It was seeing the wintertime pollution, unaffectionately dubbed the inversion for the weather pattern that creates it. It moved him to do more than just use the mountains to make himself stronger. What if he could use his training runs to raise money and awareness about clean air issues? A friend referred him to the organization Breathe Utah. And it's a partnership that has just intensified over the years. So I was like, okay, I want to, I'm going to do this thing. Can I use it to raise money? And if I did, where would it go? I sure see a lot of this air pollution stuff. Um, Is there (laughs) some way that I can uh, make a positive impact? Um, And that's when I started poking around and, you know, the idea started, gears started turning in my mind. And I connected with a friend who was at the university. He was doing research up there and he was tied in very well with that community and so I trusted his opinion and I just said if I if I just magically raised money and was to donate it you know to some entity some uh, institution in the valley here who would do something with it who would do the most you know the most good per dollar and uh, that's kind of where I got connected with Breathe Utah. What Jared didn't anticipate is just how popular the idea would become with runners and with businesses. Yeah, I didn't think this would happen. You know, when I started, it was um, challenge me. Like, I'm going to do, and I said, I'm going to do the west side 10 times. No one had done that. And if you don't think I can, you know, challenge me, like a challenge grant kind of thing. You know, put $2 on the line or $5 or $10. And if I do 10, you know, 10 times 5 bucks, you know, $50 will donate directly to Breathe Utah. And uh, so that's really how it started, was just a challenge Jared kind of event for, for four years. But... Um, it was actually really cool. <laughs> Turns out I'm not the only one who uh, likes to run in the cold and in the snow and at night. And and so actually just a few years into it, uh, people were saying, like, this is a really cool event. You ought to try to permit this. And I had approached the Forest Service and really tried to get a permit for the way we were doing it on the mm-hmm. west side. And that just wasn't working for a number of reasons. And so eventually we changed the venue. We have a, uh, 205 total. Yeah. Um, it's main, the main, probably the only thing is that it's not an official trail in the eyes of the forest service. They have a database of like maintained trails and the West side, even though people have been packing down a trail on that thing for like a hundred years, I've literally met people like 80 or 90 years old telling me they've come up here for like 80 or 90 years. Um, despite that, it's not recognized as a trail and it's not maintained. And so they won't permit it for that reason alone. That said, um, I now I have enough perspective now to realize a couple hundred people running up and down that it's pretty fragile actually, mm-hmm. um, 
just in the last 10 or 15 years without it being a race on that side, it's taken a lot of abuse. Just from people realizing it's a great training. Yeah. You know, mountain. So, um, yeah, it's a, it is an interesting race and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's super cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it was like in that beginning, but it must be an interesting thing to feel like a, a moment, I guess, or moments where you think, I can feel that this is something special before you can see it, right? Like, because you had to have felt that yeah. people are telling you this is really amazing or whatever. And at, right th- at that moment, it's just kind of you sharing that experience. Yeah. But at some point to be able to see like okay that I mean that has to be like you put something out in the world I mean and and it's had impact on people yeah well it's amazing actually because I tend to be drawn to things that are viewed as weird and obscure and I did not get that from your story at all. Uh, yeah, so that's why it started with just a challenge for me because I didn't want to be responsible for trying to help somebody else have a good experience. And usually when you're a race director, you're like, like the race I put on in Pocatello, Idaho, I wanted it to be good, right? We made sure we had a great trail and good aid stations and all this kind of stuff, you know, the stuff that sort of would make a, a classic, like a good race. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think anyone else would really like this. <laughs> um so to, I guess, fast forward to a point where people will say things like, that's my favorite event of the whole year, um, is really cool. And I think it's because it's it's the only race like it anywhere, really, mm-hmm. um, that I know of. Uh, you know, most trail running sort of takes place in ideal conditions. Most races try to pick dates where the conditions are good, with the exception of a few events. Um, and so turns out, running on snow can be really cool (laughs) and then you get every type of condition you know we we could have complete blizzard we can have rain we've even had relatively warm years at at rufa even though it's in february one of the most appealing aspects of rufa is that you design your own challenge participants decide what kind of challenge they want whether that's a training run with few surprises or a goal that includes the very real possibility of failure Grandeur Peak and its steep slopes and unpredictable winter weather will provide both the inspiration and the challenges. As the event has grown to two peaks and a separate day of climbing in an indoor gym in Salt Lake City, it has become massively popular. Jared's been approached to hold similar events in other western states and is even considering an international Rufa race. Whatever Jared takes on next, whether he's the competitor or the creator, there's only one thing that is certain. It will be a challenge to ask participants to grapple with their fears, their limits, and to consider their personal cliffs. One comment on the last thing. Laz is the guy who puts uh, the Barclay on. Um, He has this line, you know, that sort of captures the essence of the Barclay philosophy. And he says, you know, you can't accomplish anything in life unless there is the possibility that you will fail. Right, meaning that you mm-hmm. know you can't feel like you've really done something unless you might have failed. Yeah, but you can't have a huge success in life unless you will probably fail, unless the odds are really stacked against you. And that's the Barkley. I mean, mm-hmm. statistically, you know, ninety-nine percent of the people at the start line probably aren't going to finish, and it probably means so much to them. It's amazing to see how obsessed and dedicated people are that that are part of this community. Thank you for listening to Wild Why. 
I'd like to thank my editor and creative collaborator, Josh Tilton, for his insight, advice, and incredibly high standards. If you have a story of how outdoor sports shaped or transformed you or someone you know, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at tips at loudmouthproject.com or find us on Instagram at wildy1. You can email me directly at amy.donaldson at loudmouthproject.com. And you can find this podcast on Apple, Google, KSL radio app, and anywhere you find great podcasts. Thank you for listening. And remember, not all who wander are lost. Welcome to Inside the Training Room, where we explore strategies to get fitter, faster, and stronger with the support of our friends at utahrunning.com. You have the why, now learn how. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Hansen, as Amy said, and I um, am also a sports dietitian and exercise physiologist. I work with the athletic department at Weber State University. I'm an athlete myself, and I also have a private practice. So if you guys want to look at my website, it's called Julie Hansen Nutrition. Just wanted to keep that simple. And then I also have a Facebook page that I would love for you guys to be part of. It's called Practical Sports Nutrition. So just search for that and ask to join. Love to have you in it. Okay. So today we're going to discuss sugar, fuel, or poison. And I came to this uh, topic because I run ultras and, and even in marathons. And it seems to me a lot of the fuel is candy or sugary, you know, type things like I, like a peanut butter and jelly on white bread, right? Like, which I would tell myself, like, that's not, that's a treat. That's not food. That's not nutrition, right? So um, I guess my question in the age of all things sugar is all bad. And, and I do think there's way too much added sugar in most foods. But, um, but so how do you approach sugar? Like, how do you, how do you decide? How do you have a relationship, a healthy relationship with sugar? <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, there you go, Amy. That's really good. Okay. For an athlete, it's fuel. For um, someone who is just trying to um, avoid diabetes, it, it, it comes out to a quantity issue. Um, so I, I don't really like for people to drink a lot of sugar, especially during the day, unless, again, you're an athlete that's trying to fuel. And maybe that's, you know, if you're getting ready for a big event, an ultra event, Amy, like, you know, some of your stuff, then you've probably got to drink some of your, your calories as um, sugar. Um, but eventually, like, again, there's really nothing wrong with, you know, having a sandwich for lunch and then having some candy afterwards, like a piece of a chocolate bar or something like that. The problem would be if you just had chocolate bars for lunch, right? So that would be the problem. So sugar can fit into a healthy diet. You know, now the new food labels are going to have the added sugar component. So I think that's going to give us the ability to sort of compare, you know, how much added sugar do we want in there? Now, again, that's included in the carbohydrate um, total. So for athletes, you know, a lot of times I just have them focus on the carbohydrate number to make sure they get enough carbohydrate grams to fuel their um, sport. Most most athletes are going to need over 300 grams of carbohydrate per day. And so it's really hard to eat that in fruits and vegetables. So you're going to have to eat some of the simple carbohydrates. And simple carbohydrates, <clears throat> again, are, are what you're going to find is labeled as sugar on the food label, but not all of that is bad. So I really like the 
fact that they're coming out with added sugars because that's going to tell the difference between what's a normal naturally in the food. Like let's take an example of yogurt that has lactose. So that's a simple sugar that's going to look like sugar on the food label. But now we can see, okay, what's what else is added to it? So I think that's going to give us a really good look at, you know, just again, the added sugars. But as an athlete, you're going to need some of that. So it's not necessarily a bad thing when you're when you're looking at a label if there are a couple of grams of added sugar not you don't have to put the yogurt back right i mean probably a good guideline would be um you know some of the the recommendations that we're seeing is maybe 100 calories of added sugar for women 150 calories of added sugar for men but that's again for the non-athletic population. Um, I think maybe a good rule of thumb, if you guys really want one, is about 10% of your calories um, from added sugars. And so let me just do some math here really quick. (laughs) We don't have a calculator. Yeah, we don't have a calculator. Yeah. So if we just said that if you were eating, I don't know, some some um that's about 50 grams of of added sugar if you're eating a 2000 calorie diet you know whatever yeah. something like that so um so 10% is probably a fairly decent guideline unless you really are doing a lot of endurance exercise and you may need a little bit more than that do you find if people don't see sugar as a poison like they don't have to eliminate it from everything that they have overall a healthier relationship with food Yes, I I do think so. Um, I will say that for blood sugar stabilization, it's important to have protein, fat, and fiber in your diet. So, So sugar in and of itself, like if you were to have a snack that just had mostly like, I mean, even just drinking a soda, like that could cause you to, um, it could cause your insulin level to go up, not too much, but, and then your blood sugar may drop a little bit. And so you may, if you're that kind of person, you may find yourself getting hungrier from actually having like a soda with nothing else with it. So if you can stabilize your blood sugar, so if you're going to have sugar, have it with something else, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So eat your fruits and vegetables and then you can have the cookie. 